One of the people, well-meaning, said, Mike, why do you think you went to Rikers? And he thought for a very uncomfortably long time. I'm like, oh, I hope he's going to be able to answer this. He looked up, looked around, and he said, I'll tell you why I went to Rikers. I got bored in school. Our school, particularly in middle school, was so underfunded that we always had substitute teachers. So to your point, the things we think are intractable and we're like, well, we can't change race, we can't change poverty. He was saying, get yourself some better teachers in my schools. Yeah. I yeah. wouldn't have cost you $45,000 a year to keep me in prison. My people, I am bringing you, and I know I say this sometimes, but this person truly is one of the greatest people I know. You are about to meet Holly Carter. Holly began her career as a writer and editor at the New York Times and was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Since then, she lived in Korea as a Henry Luce scholar and print and television journalist, produced the award-winning documentary Margaret Sanger, co-founded North Carolina's Full Frame Festival, served as a consultant for the After School Corporation, produced the BBS series Media Matters, and most recently was the executive director of the Film Initiative. But now she is the executive director of By Kids. And By Kids pairs talented young storytellers with seasoned filmmakers to create powerful documentaries about their lives. In partnership with public television and education innovators, they are sharing the films and related curricula to help make global issues feel personal, relevant and actionable for millions of students. Their work is being seen by how many people now, Holly? 84 million households. Welcome, Holly Carter. I'm obsessed with you. My dear Bronwyn, I am so deeply honored to know you and to get to share this time together. Your infectious enthusiasm for the work we do, which is long, hard days. You just have an enthusiasm and a belief in it and an understanding of our promised land that I am grateful to share with you. So thank you. Well, I'm so thrilled to have you on. And I really am just a massive fan of what you're doing. And before we get into sort of the crux of what you guys are about, I think about you in a New York Times context. And I think about you in a reporting context. And I think that Bi Kids and your work that you're doing with Bi Kids is definitely in the same constellation of universe of storytelling, but it's so different from the work you were doing at the Times. Like, how did you go from there to here? Like, tell me about that journey just briefly. Every answer that I'm going to give you is going to be macro and micro. So mm. I I think I was right out of college. I'd been the news editor of my college newspaper. And I was observing as a kid, you know, a cub reporter does. And by the way, my job at the New York Times in the early days was so not glamorous. I literally stood in the business section where I had been assigned as a copy person. And if anybody wants to share my darkest secret that's now out, there's one of my colleagues is the uh, ghostwriter for Harry's book, Spare, and Agassiz's book. And oh. before that, he wrote a book called The Tender Bar. Yeah. A full chapter titled Copy Girl. And I am Copy Girl. So shut up. Are you joking? <laughs> Seriously, other than making it a chapter into somebody's book that, by the way, anybody that knows me is like, 
wow, he actually captured you really well. I was going to say, Holly, did he do you justice? Because I will find him and give him a tongue lashing if he did not do you justice. I don't care whose freaking memoir he goes through. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's all makes me feel like a hundred million bucks, but <laughs> it's all very accurate. Anyway, the job of a copy person, girl or boy, was not super glamorous. So we would stand mm. for eight hours a day sorting the mail into the little square boxes. And I happened to be assigned to the business section. So I was observing a lot. And what I began to see was something that I call colonial journalism, which was people being sent to foreign countries from New York or from another country who didn't speak a language and didn't know anything about the culture. They would parachute in, they would extract, and it would be their story. So that began a long, many years of meditation on who owns their story and mm. how do we get more equitable about giving people the voice. And mm. then it became micro. So mm. I could say I wanted to upend the way mainstream journalism, like who are the voices that get in and who are we hearing from and what is truth? Mm. Yes. Then I had my own kids and my kids were little, not they're wonderful children. They're not particularly intelligent. They're just what every kid is. They're always honest. Mm. They see through dishonesty and inauthenticity to mm -hmm. nail you somewhere in the mix of all that. I was like, well, if we really wanted to change the way journalism happens and if the way American students are learning in frankly silos of fear, right? Mm. They're being taught to other and they're not being taught much about foreign countries because also business economics, the New York Times and all of their brethren couldn't afford to have foreign bureaus everywhere. So things yeah. were starting to close and our world was beginning to get smaller. So mm. there my kids are, I live in New York. They were at what I call the most expensive public school in the world. <laughs> they were at this fancy private school that taught pluralism. And they were, even at one of the best private schools, were not necessarily learning about their world. They weren't really learning about how to own their voice and use their voice. Wow. So the micro comes into play where I'm like, you know what? First of all, the note we got about community service being a scuba diving trip in Fiji and that the last day they'd paint somebody's house. I was like, huh. Holly Carter just got a little angry about what we're teaching our own kids, let alone everybody else. Mm. And it, it was 17 years ago, hard to believe. This idea came together. What if we actually gave the kids the camera, the authority to tell their own story? Because I always look at the things that get me angry, mm. that are what incite me to change and do something. You go to these conferences and the policymakers talk about policy and talk about how those policies land on people. Mm -hmm. They don't actually ask the people for whom these policies are made, how they feel, how they see problems, and most importantly, how do you see the solutions? So mm -hmm. that's a very long-winded way of saying it took me a lot of years and a lot of being pissed off yeah. to say, I think what we really need to do is teach our kids differently in this country. We need mm -hmm. to be teaching them empathy, we need to teach them, can you believe it? We have to actually teach them how to listen mm. and live in a state of fear. So by mm. kids born out of what 
that took me 150 words to explain it, but that's the basis of something that I think really has the capacity to change everything about the way we do stuff. What's interesting, I got to preview, you have a new season. When does it open on PBS? When does it the first episode drop? So check your local PBS listings. The series is called Films by Kids. Going out in New York, we have a primetime airing of two of the films. They're 27-minute films. Two of them are paired together. It's launching in New York on Channel 13 Mm -hmm. on November 11th. Mm-hmm. at 7 to 8 p.m. And then the following Saturday, another two. And every city is slightly different. So you will you do have to check your listings. Or if you want me to send you lists of cities, I'm happy to share. Well, the interwebs has all of the insights. But I was so lucky because you gave me a little sneak peek into some of these episodes. And the first one I watched is, I think, the first one in the lineup, which is Return Date Unknown which is a Ukrainian teenager who's a refugee living in Germany, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right, Holly? And he tells his story. And as I was watching this, I don't even know how old he was, but as I was watching this kid who's about the same age as my teenage daughter, talk about what it has been like, what that big faraway war between Ukraine and Russia has been like for him. There was this feeling of anger that I felt, which is, All of the coverage of this war is understandable. They're covering it at the macro level, like you say. And yes, they tell the story of this and that on the ground, but there is no one asking the freaking teenagers, the children, the people that are the most dramatically and irrevocably affected by these wars, what their experience is like. And what I was struck by is just how capable teenagers and young people are at telling their own stories. Like, why have we not handed the cameras to them sooner, Holly? Like, what have been your moments where you've been like, holy shit, these kids know what's up? Yeah, it makes me remember being a kid. I don't think my parents truly believe this, but I heard it enough so it became something. Children should be seen and not heard. <gasps> I was raised with that too. I mean, come on. So I don't know about your life, but... And I'm going to give you a very specific anecdote. I'm not going to name specific names, but you'll get the gist. My husband and I live in New York. We've got lots of journalist friends. We go to a dinner party with maybe 10 people. Four of them have gotten Pulitzer Prizes. I got a nomination. They got the prize. Wow. These are all super intelligent people who are keyed into the global world. And my husband and I got home. I said, honey, did anybody ask you anything about you? No. Did anybody ask about you? No. I said, you know what? This was on the walk home. We got home again. My not my kids are above average. Yeah. We get home and I'm like, so guys, how was your day? And the honesty and the clarity and the just the levity that they see the things in the world. It was, you know, hi, Oprah. Mm. It was my aha moment that these mm. guys... Mm. Don't let their ego or their politics or their drama or their whatever get in the way of just speaking truthfully. And it's so disarming, raw, so real. And guess what? Mm. It's the one thing we all have in common. That's right. It brought me back to sitting on the floor with my little munchkins, made me realize that I would actually prefer 
to sit as I did this weekend with my 10 year old friend and hear about his perception of the world and mm. perception of himself and me and by mm-hmm. kids or whatever mm-hmm. than I would with some Pulitzer Prize winning hoity toities that were so wrapped up in trying to prove they were important. Sounds smart. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that really was like, I just want to hang with the kids. Like at Thanksgiving, when we were all yeah. fighting to be at the adult table. Yeah. They'll like put me at the kid table. <laughs> That's right. And yeah. what's interesting is I think the way adults look at problems is we see them as intractable and impossible to solve, way too complex. It affords us the ability to be like, well, can't solve that. Too hard. It's too hard of a problem. These kids, meanwhile, come through and they're like, are you effing kidding me? We have to solve these problems. If we don't figure out, I think of Greta Thunberg, I think of some of the kids that you're, you've got climate activists, just incredible talent on your roster. They look at these problems and they don't go, oh, well, too hard. They go, existential crisis, we have no choice but to solve these problems. And part of me thinks that's part of the gift of letting young people tell these stories is that they're more free to say, we don't have the option to over-intellectualize climate change. Just hearing from the, the young man that was the refugee from Ukraine, he just very clearly was like, look, we didn't get a lot of support in this war with Russia because Europe needs the fossil fuels to heat their houses. Like we get it. I get it. But why aren't we talking honestly about the fact that we need better energy sources? Like I love the purity of how they see an issue and they're like, don't look away. You know, it's funny. It reminds me of we wanted to make a film about juvenile justice reform, incarceration. We have a horrible prison here in New York called Rikers. Oh, yeah. We picked a guy who was 18 when he made our film. He was 17. He'd gone to Rikers. Jesus Christ. And this film, I could tell you about my life, is an amazing film. And Mike Martin had never had a microphone to say or do anything. He had been invisible as an African-American poor kid with a mother who disappeared and no father and living with grandma who had five kids living in the house on, I forget, with like $238 a month. My God. God bless grandma. One person can make a difference. Mike Martin made this film with amazing mentoring. Like the important part of this, it's not just letting kids free to do whatever. Mm. It's the mentorship and the world-class filmmaker that helps the kid tell their story. So we were at WNET headquarters mm. and Mike had been invited in and it, he was super nervous. He has never, other than being hauled in front of his parole board guy, he's never been an authority who gets to talk to adults. And we had a big group of people in this city who are trying to do juvenile justice reform. So there were probably 30 people. And one of the people, well-meaning, said, Mike, why do you think you went to Rikers? And he thought for a very uncomfortably long time. I'm like, oh, I hope he's going to be able to answer this. I hope, you know, like, uh." he looked up, looked around and he said, I'll tell you why I went to Rikers. I got bored in school. Our school, particularly in middle school, was so underfunded that we always had substitute teachers. And I literally, if you've ever seen a human brain explode at a boardroom with the prophet sitting there saying, so to your point, the things we think are intractable and we're like, well, we can't change race. We can't change poverty. He was saying, 
get yourself some better teachers in my schools. I wouldn't have cost you $45,000 a year to keep me in prison. Yeah. Okay. So yes, the kids, when we, I don't want to say get out of the way, because I think the most annoying thing I ever hear is when an older person says, oh, well, we've screwed up the world and we're going to leave it to the kids to fix. No, yeah, yeah. we have to do what we can to help them. Yeah. But they really have the answers. My favorite mm-hmm. question, mm-hmm. if you're curious about talking to young people is, yeah. oh, tell me what the adults have done the worst to mess up the world and how would you solve it? And you'll get some darn good yeah, you will. Conversations. <laughs> that is so true. Another thing that I'm curious about, because this problem of why did I end up in Rikers? I got bored. And basically, this is the thing that scares me about the education system, which is why I'm such a fan of what Bikes is doing and how it's being woven into the curriculum. I think it's so visionary. But the thing that worries me the most, Holly, is all of the research that's been done that's really, it's legit research that's being done on the attention span is coming out of UCI and Gloria Mark's team. And the attention span is in free fall. You know, I think in 2016, it was like a minute, 46 seconds was the average attention span. It's now down around 45 seconds. And we're still educating children as if they have endless amounts of attention span. And one of the great truths is that even though we have no attention span, we do have a tremendous amount of interest span, which is a term coined by Robert McKee, of course, legendary storyteller himself. But the interest span is that natural human capacity to binge watch or binge listen or get really absorbed in a book. And to me, the only way we are going to teach our children who are the freaking TikTok generation with no attention spans, is to engage with them in story, right? So it's like you could go in and do a section on geopolitics and A, B, and C region, or you can pull up content and pull up stories from people their age to hear what's going on. I mean, talk a little bit about how you see education shifting and what Buy Kids is doing to be a part of that. So... Let me just back up and make sure that we frame this. So we mm. help a kid somewhere in the world tell a 27-minute film. They're the mm. director, the narrator, the cinematographer of their own film. They've mm. been mentored by a world-class filmmaker. That's the beginning of the job. So think an inconvenient truth, participant film very smartly at the end of that film where I could have been captivated by the polar bear on the shrinking iceberg. You might have been captivated by something else. Participant did an amazing job of a menu of things you could do to take action. Mm. That's crucial to the work we do. So we have thought long and hard about how do we take these films and get them to kids in a way that can allow for meaningful conversation and self-reflection. That is not on TikTok. It might be additive. We came to the belief early on that teachers were the way to scaffold what these films represent. None Mm. of them are about one thing only, 27 minutes. These are, they pack a wallop. They're like, you know, when you cut the onion and you're tearing up, there are like so many layers on each of them. Yeah. So our belief is as follows. The public school system in this country was designed to prepare 
not creative, critical thinkers to be good factory workers. And it, quite frankly, is working exactly as invented. So the kind of people like Lorene Jobs and like Mackenzie Scott, who are thinking about how there could be a different kind of education, those are our kind of people. And we have said then, we are fully committed to making sure that these 27-minute films, to your point about attention span, I will say that, yes, your attention span for homework, or Mm. I'm going to say the world of education, the elder educators were teaching the younger educators who've all come out and now we're in classrooms. They just got taught textbook and putting a textbook on a tablet does nothing for nobody. No, I agree. I agree. You need to speak to kids in the language they know, which is moving image. And the idea, whether it's still totally true that a kid would be asked to turn off their phone They literally are absorbing everything about their knowledge base through moving image, Mm. and they're expressing themselves through moving image outside the wall of the school. So how dramatic, how wonderfully impactful it could be if you bring a film like this into the curriculum and Mm. scaffold it, not in the way that teachers usually do, which is the goal of watching this film is X. It's, hey, you've seen a film made by a kid who went to Rikers. When have you in your own life felt like you were given too much responsibility or treated as an adult? Or when you got in trouble, what caused you to get in trouble? Or Mm -hmm. not even having to go that way, not to be that personal because certain people are not wired that way. And then say, ask a story about your parent when they got in trouble or Mm -hmm. somebody in your community. So this Mm -hmm. idea that it can activate thoughtful introspection. Yes. Curiosity. Yes. I I haven't been in many schools where that's a premium. And I do not want children who are factory workers. I want children who can live in the world and get along with other people and come finding enough shared humanity that they'll actually look for solutions to things. If we're all just like, oh, I don't like them. They don't look like me. They don't talk like me. We'd never solve anything. Well, we can't. And democracy won't function either. My mind is like flooded with thoughts. I'm thinking about when I used to teach this program called Project Cornerstone at my kid's school. It's like an anti-bullying program, whatever. And I would go in there and I would only have an hour with them. We would talk about a book or we would talk about a concept or whatever. And as quickly as possible, I would want to get them talking. And what I found is that when you prompt them properly and you create a vibe, they will go all the way. They will go all the way. They'll talk to each other. They'll talk to you. What kids respond to is being treated and spoken to as if they are human beings and not little robots. And by the way, the AI overlords are going to make All of that education, like that whole mode is not useful anymore. And what it makes me think of, Holly, is the process I'm going through with my oldest right now as she's applying to colleges. All of the college essays, all of the universities, they want you to be able to look inside of your history, your heart, yourself, your personality, extract stories and make meaning of them. The schools are trying, I think, to do that, but It's just like we're teaching to the tests, right? We're teaching to the no child left behind mentality. 
talk about like when you work with somebody, let's say this kid who actually had to spend part of his childhood in Rikers. Did you find that that skill was ready to go? It wasn't like his meaning-making storytelling skill was impaired by having done time in a prison. Is it that innate in us, Holly, that any kid, no matter how traumatized, can go and look inside and extract a story and make meaning of it? I'm thinking about the 17 films we've made, depending on people's circumstance, the way they've been spoken to in their life, that to varying degrees, the same mm-hmm. as you find in any group of any people, right? Yeah. I think particularly in the case of Mike, amazing Mike, the more he, look, at our core, we all want to be seen. We all want to be understood. Yes. And I'm going to start crying. The fact that people had seen value in him that he had not seen or had never, he'd never been valued. He was the kid that everyone crosses the street to get away from. Oh my God. Grandmother, literally, I mean, you got to see this film, like every one of them. But the my favorite moment is where grandma says to Mike, I hope the process of making this film, he's had a world, he's had two world-class filmmakers helping him tell his story. And it, so the answer is it took him a while to begin to value what had happened to him Mm. because he had been so traumatized, but varying degrees and slightly faster, slightly slower. He, when his grandma said at the end of filming, Mike, I just hope you have come to understand how much love you have in yourself. Like it was so beautiful. So it goes back to this idea and something popped into my mind. I think I know American schooling. I know American teens. I've also now, because we've met kids like Timor, who shows up in my apartment in New York so that we can screen his film with the the Ukrainian teenager. Ukrainian teenager. His father is one of the most famous Ukrainian war correspondents who has made sure the mom and Timor have left to live in a monastery in Bavaria while he risks his life every day. They'd all arrived in New York and all these people are meeting Timor. Like this kid is 17 years old. Like he is so soulful and he's so reflective. Part of that is just the kind of family he grew up in where people were talking about feelings. But sadly, it also came from the kind of resilience that he had to build because of what's happened to him in the last year and a half. I will say I think, at least in this country, we have wildly underestimated our kids from birth to college and beyond. We have underestimated two things. One is, and we've already talked about this, how powerful their view on reality is and how creative they can be with their solutions. And if we as adults start to think more deeply and committedly about how to give them more of that, the better. And something you said about bullying, I think so much of what I think about is we all need to feel comfortable in our skin. Yeah. And the process that's bullies don't feel comfortable in their skin. Somebody told them they were bad and they're just yep. kicking it down. That's so right. when we're seen and when we're understood, we're mm-hmm. able to be more comfortable in our skin. And when we mm-hmm. see our own experience, your point about attention span actually makes me think about social media and how isolated people have become. There's a mental health crisis directly correlated to when the kid got a cell phone because it's a freaking lonely thing to be 
engaging with the world. So the big thing I want to say is, and the first film we made in Mozambique, and we showed it one morning in May at an all boys high school. Now these guys are all hormonal and it's the end of the year and they're exhausted <laughs> and it's morning and I'm sitting there. I'm like, oh, this is not going to go well. And no joke for 27 minutes, you could have heard a pin drop and it's not because anyone was sleeping. And at the emotional points of our Mozambique kid who had lost both parents to AIDS, who his best friend had never told him that his parents too had died of AIDS and that they felt this incredible responsibility. To, you could have heard a pin drop at Fancy Pants Collegiate High School for boys. One of them came up to me. I kind of viscerally understood it or knew it or was leaning into it. He said, you have no idea how starved we are for connection to the bigger world. And what he meant was there's not enough foreign stuff that we can eat in our daily diet. And thank yeah. goodness you've shared Elsidish's story from Mozambique. I see myself, I see my family, I see, and I've held that. You can't see it because this is a podcast, but I have a New Yorker cartoon of three old white guys. And the, the caption is, my granddaughter wants me to stop blowing the tops off mountains. We're all open to the kids talking, but we very rarely have that opportunity. Oh, that story. We're starved for that content. I think that is so real. And I want you to speak for just a second about the difference between, because these kids are all on camera. They've all got cameras and they're shooting all day long, Holly. But there is a difference between the curated highlight reels of social media and the type of video storytelling, that skill that you're giving these kids as you pair them up with filmmakers. Talk about the difference. When you're a kid making a TikTok or a reel, you're solving for something. When you're engaged in a Buy Kids project to tell a story, you're solving for something else. What are those two problems and how would you characterize them? The TikTok one, I can't explain. <laughs> <laughs> Because I honestly, I've never been on TikTok, although I hear it's my super addictive. Holly, don't do it. To. Just I don't, don't do it. I would guess that solves for our need to feel part of the tribe and that being popular and being mm. whatever those that's, that's my guess. But that, that, let's I love that guess. I think that sounds that. real to me. I think what the by kids model is doing is asking a kid and we do this as part of the process. What do you most want the world to know about you? And wouldn't we all have much richer lives, no matter what our age, if that's the question we went through connecting with people on? Because yeah. back to the point about we all want to be seen and understood. I'm not going to be un understood if I slap on a bunch of lipstick and do a goofy dance. I'm sorry, that's not going to find our shared humanity. Yeah. If I say my feelings really got hurt by this, has that ever happened to you or... Those are the skills. My goodness, that's what I want these kids, these little darlings who we say our sweet spot is middle school and high school, but the elementary school. Oh, kids, they get it. They're like, yes, like, oh, the exiled king of Tibet who could never live in his country. Yeah, look how cool he is. I'd like to learn more about that. Mm -hmm. Or I want to leave. So mm -hmm. back to my point, I think the tech guys, if they're listening to this, have also underestimated all of us. Our need for creativity yes. is like water and air. 
human beings cannot live in a world where they're not creative. So TikTok helps yeah. yeah. for that because in a way it's the currency of creativity, but it's stupid. It's a bag of Fritos. It tastes great, but it's not going to hit any of your nutritional goals. But I think we're all so trapped, and I know my kids are, and anybody who has children can probably relate. Our kids are very much trapped in the drama triangles of Western culture. We're very like, oh my God, so-and-so said X and Y and Z, and it feels stressful. Modern life in San Jose, California, feels enormously stressful to these kids. And then when they can climb out of their own perspective into some other teenager's reality in Germany or Mozambique or wherever it is, I think it's a relief to know that they're not the center of the goddamn universe. Because how terrifying is it to think as they say in AA, that I'm the piece of shit at the center of the universe. You know what I mean? Like there's gotta be something about that where they think, whoa, this is a great big world. I am a tiny part of it. And I'm so curious about these other people. Yeah, that just sums it all up. I think my happiest moments are when we have pre-COVID, we did it a lot, COVID not Mm -hmm. at all. When parents are with their kids, And something like this would happen. We made a film, Fire in Our Hearts. It's about, I went to bad public school where we learned there were Brahmins and untouchables in India. I learned in the course of running by kids that somebody told me there are 8 million tribals in India for whom there was no literacy and no constitutional rights. 8 million people worse off than the untouchables. I'm like, Oh, that can't be true. I read the newspaper and I asked Mr. Google and sure enough, there are 8 million. And we found one of them, this spectacular, I think she was 13 when she made our film. She made a film about how she fought to be educated and how the government ran schools for tribals, but there was this initiative that was doing better. And here we're showing a film. Okay. We're showing the film in New York to a lot of entitled enough kids that their parents had brought them to something in Manhattan at night. The kind of conversations that were recounted to me as soon as the parents got back saying things like, oh my goodness, I have not talked to my teen about anything other than hammering them about getting their studying done or getting their SAT thing or their essay for college. Haven't talked about meaning. And here we had a full-blown, deep conversation in which the teen's revelation is, I never knew how lucky I was. Now, fundamental thing, and I study a little bit of Buddhism. I don't study it well enough to do this often enough, but isn't gratitude the key to happiness? And our kids are starved for connection to the outside world. We're not honoring that. I mean, we our kids are, but generally it's a culture. And we certainly do not do anything in regard to having them develop a sense of gratitude, meaning perspective. How does my experience compare differently, similarly to other people? And what's a mechanism to share that? Because that's where the beauty of life, that's a rich life. That's right. Not the bucks in the bank. Just And it's also, it's that search for something deeper from a meaning standpoint that there is a world out there in which people are doing the extraordinary 
And you can be a part of that world. You don't have to chase meaning in the form of degrees or in the form of the house at the beach and all the things. Listen, I love my creature comforts. Not going to say I don't, but those don't actually have meaning inherent. I remember years ago, I was at the first time I ever went to a Four Seasons hotel in my life. And it was a free trip. My husband and I was one of his things. And I went to the like the grown up pool and I was looking, I was at the Four Seasons at the adult pool. And I was like, this is awesome. Look, you guys, look where we are right now. We're at the Four Seasons. And I looked around and you have never seen a more dour collection of adult people at this freaking pool. And it was such a moment where I was like, this whole construct of capitalism and hungry ghost syndrome, where it's never enough, is such a lie because you get to this point where you have it all and you are fucking miserable and you have missed the entire human experience of human beings working on hard problems that they probably won't solve in their lifetime. But it feels so good to at least be engaged in solving the problem like you are, Holly. That's where living actually happens. And this bullshit we've been trained to chase that we're training our children to chase because we're chasing it is actually robbing them of the very thing that they incarnated into these skin suits to experience. It makes me crazy. And that's why I'm so fascinated and grateful for the work you guys are doing, which actually leads me to my very last question. I swear I'm going to let you go. My last question is, when the filmmakers are mentoring these students, when they're giving them guidance, what are the things you tend to hear? I'm sure you hear things like, damn, fill in the blank. Like, what do they come to you and say, wow, about? The inherent wisdom that when given a little time and space is extraordinary in every one of these cases. These are filmmakers who've listened and couch stories their entire life. They are blown away by these kids who just say they speak truth and they, not to borrow whoever's term it is, but they don't care who's in power. They just speak truth. And I think it's both refreshing and awe-inspiring to have the mentor witness that. I think the one that makes me laugh a little bit is there have been kids like our girl in India who did not have a computer. So the idea of showing up with this huge camera that she was going to have to use and figure out how to tell a story, and that's an art. Martin Scorsese has honed his art for a long time. You know what the most surprising thing is? They have no problem with that. They don't know that they shouldn't know how to push the on button. She just pushed some buttons and Joyce Chopra, her mentor, was able to say, oh, that's exactly right. Now let's think about how you're going to tell your story and what the options visually would be. So I think between awe-inspiring truth spilling out of these young hearts and minds with such clarity is on the one hand, and just the ability to get on with it already, like you're giving me an opportunity to tell my story. Rock on. Let me run. <laughs> wow. Well, I can't thank you enough, Holly, for all the work you're doing. Where can people go watch some of these clips that have already aired? So we have a YouTube channel. So just look up by kids, B-Y-K-I-D-S. And all of the old films are there. And 
send me an email. I'm at holly at bykids.org if you have ideas for films to make. And we're really working hard now to develop some of our own curriculum around peer-to-peer story sharing, which is an important next step for us. That should be in every school, in every country, in every part of the world, that right there. We're on it. We're on yeah. it. So and so- one last thing that is really, really important. You are in the process right now of fundraising and you've got a donor match program going on right now, which is huge. And I want to encourage everyone listening to this to go to buykids.org, make a donation, it, no matter how small, so that it can be matched so that we can get more cameras into the hands of more children in more places around the world. I mean, Whitney wasn't kidding when she said that the the children are our future, but they really are. The only thing we have going for us right now is these kids, in my belief. So get on over, buykids.org, throw your hat in the ring, make a donation. Somebody's going to match it. Who is the donor that is matching it? Is it a public donor? It's the Stahl Family Fund, and they have given us a very sizable grant that's matched through the end of the year. That's fantastic. Thanks. Special thanks to them. So do that. Watch the videos. I can't wait for it to air in the fall. I am going to sit with my kids and watch them. I can't even wait. And just keep doing your thing, Holly, because you work your ass off. I see you and I love you. Bronwyn, thank you for sharing your afternoon with me. Hey, if you haven't already, hit subscribe so you can get my latest podcast episodes delivered hot off the press or share this with someone who could use it. If you're looking to go further on this journey as a communicator, head over to bronwyncommunications.com forward slash subscribe and get on that newsletter. You get fresh tips every Monday morning to set you up for the week. And on the last Saturday of the month, you'll get a short email with my favorite things that I'm into. If you're dealing with a tough client or work situation and you need better skills for managing hard conversations, check out my No Enemy Conversation course. It's at noenemy.bronwyncommunications.com and it is self-paced and it is all there for you. Lastly, if your company or organization needs a high-voltage keynote speaker who knows how to melt faces and blow minds virtually or in real life, I am your gal. I have two dozen different fantastic keynote topics. And you and I, we can make something killer happen. So shoot me a note and let's do it. That's Bronwyn at bronwyncommunications.com. Take care and shine on. We need your light.